nomadic place to work. And a far more interesting place in many ways than the large radio station, the big radio station, the 50,000 water. And for one thing, the man involved in a large radio station usually does his one specific task. Well, he works the plant, and that is the end of it. However, the man in a smaller radio station must do almost everything in that radio station. Well, I can remember doing this. Here's a little example of that. I used to do a man-on-the-street broadcast in a small town in the Midwest, and the man-on-the-street broadcast was on from 12.15 until 12.30. Well, I had a record program, believe it or not, that was also on from 12.30 to 1.30. Well, how did I get from the location of the man-on-the-street broadcast back into the studio to do my, uh, my particular, well, my particular battle? How did I do that? Well, it was an interesting thing. Uh, we simply did it this way. Uh, after I would finish my Man on the Street broadcast, I would say, we now return you to the studio, and an announcer in standby would read a one-minute announcement very slowly. And all the while, I was running down the street, up through the, through the uh, long, long, long passageway up to the third floor, and by the time he had finished that, and by the time my theme had played one half way through, I was ready for business. Most people always thought that I was recorded, you see, but that radio station never could afford a recording. Uh, somebody wants information about Jones and Hare. Well, uh, I don't know what sort of information you want to hear about Jones and Hare. That was another very early radio team. Uh, what do you mean? Where did they work? What did they do? How did they operate? Who wrote their scripts? Where they were born or where they went? Well, those, those uh, questions, of course are not particularly interesting as far as we're concerned right now. What we were trying to talk about, though, was the change that has come over radio. And it's done so in a very gradual fashion. We're not particularly concerned with, with definite, specific individuals. Hey, no, a team. Now, do you recall, for example, the uh, Sinclair Minstrels? Now, the Sinclair Minstrels were an extremely popular, a very potent radio team. Actually, they were not a radio team. Now, I'll give you a little tip. Uh, if you ever watch television, there is a program that comes out of Chicago that is a circus program. You might have seen it. A circus program? Well, the clown on that circus program, or one of the chief clowns, was one of the big guys in the old Sinclair Minstrels back in the 20s and early 30s. There are still many of them still around, still doing their jobs at radio, and very, very successful at it. Although things do, and they always will and probably have to. And to worry about ways and means. I began to worry about means and whether or not the means actually were more important than the ends and so forth, back and forth. And I can understand it's okay. Shiftings of, well, shiftings of standards when a new situation came about. We are not going to speak about the Gordini tonight. Now, that will be saved for another and a later discussion. And nor are we going to discuss the Bandini. Now, it's an interesting little automobile. We're not going to talk about it, however, tonight. Uh, we are not going to discuss either the Effie, which is the fine little car, nor the British Cooper. But I will say this. Uh, a discussion of this sort always reminds me of Christmas-type programs on the radio or on the television. Where the sponsor will take, instead of his usual 45 seconds to a minute and a half, he will take two and a half minutes explaining why he isn't going to give a commercial tonight. Two and a half minutes explaining that this upright manufacturer of the finest Fig Newtons in the world 
Ask for them at your local grocery store. The Fig Newtons with Christmas appeal. The Fig Newtons with drive and vitality and sound sales impact are winning this program without commercials tonight. Well, we're not going to talk about Gordini's tonight. We're not going to speak of the Bandini. However, I will say that to those of you who have become interested in sports cars from listening to our previous discussions, the current issue of Time magazine has a very fine article on them. But be careful, there are a few curves in that. Be careful, there are a few interesting little, well, I would call them more, uh, not really curves, a fast drop ball. Uh, there are some people who call it a screwball, but uh, when I was playing ball, it was called a simple in drop. And I would suggest that you keep a very careful eye out and keep it well peeled and well formed. However, it was a good, easy thing to go as long as we were there to go. The Fig Newton with the vital impact, vitamin enriched with chlorophyll. Uh, nomenclature is very important in almost any field, and if you're going to talk about sports, well, you have to use the language. Uh, you must be very careful about that language, because if you don't, it will immediately brand you as a non-sportsman. It will brand you as a phony. Uh, in fact, if that is one little thing, that is one very delicate little nuance that many people fail to realize, and yet... When they sit in a movie that is produced by a British producer, they can see immediately, for some reason or other, that this American who is being portrayed on the screen by a British actor just doesn't gel. And they can't understand why. Well, it is these tiny little differences in language. Even though he is very carefully using all American slang of about 1937 American slang, you see. But at the same time, the word usages are not exactly right. Again, a problem of nomenclature. Uh, somebody brought up the topic of the Scarab automobile. We're not going to speak of Gordini's tonight, nor are we going to speak of that, but we have discussed the, the Scarab. Now, the Scarab is an automobile that was, that was foisted on the American public about 1935 or 36. I know that they were in business in 36 because this gentleman has an advertisement from them. However, I believe the first one was built about 35. Uh, the Scarab was a cab-over engine car. The engine was underneath the driver, and the driver sat way out in front all by himself. There wasn't a seat like we have today, sort of like a bus driver in a great hot bus, the theory being that he could have better visibility. At the same time, he would not be distracted listening to Aunt Tilly all the way down the light. The seats in the car were arranged alongside the window so that you could look straight out the window. You know, like a pilot car, Instead of looking straight out, instead of looking ahead, that's a rather practical idea. About from the floor would come a table if you wish to play a hand of pinochle or perhaps a salami sandwich or two. And then there was a heavy couch that was ranged along the back, and that was purely a private uh, institution. Now the scarab is an interesting thing and was in its day. I don't know of a collector who has one. But then knowing how collectors are, we feel that it won't be too long before someone will resurrect one of them. Casting ashore for another one of the smaller ones, we came across one that was much too large. Difficult to wrestle with. But uh, the footwork was still there. Well, of course, uh, I would say a good uh, 65% to 70% of the male population, over 21, became very steep, completely steeped in the world of a popular mechanics-type inventor. 
at a very early age. And I can remember some fantastic articles that ran in those particular magazines. One of them, and I'm not kidding when I say that, Tom, I'll never forget the picture of this man in Elmida, California, standing proudly next to his house trailer that he constructed out of old piano boxes or something. And he was the only man in California who had a wind-driven Hammond organ installed in his house trailer. It says, however, that it does uh, decrease his gasoline efficiency, particularly when he is playing the more intricate works of Bach. But uh, he had his brief moment of glory. He flashed through the heavens of the popular mechanics inventors and was never heard from again. Uh, then again, there are 10,000 others just like him. I'll never forget uh, the article. Uh, the man uh, obviously spent years perfecting the thing, he had a series of neon tubes and a series of electric lights all well-colored and concealed behind his mantelpiece. And he had it connected to his radio set. And when the radio set would play music, these various lights would flicker off and on behind his mantelpiece. And he was willing, ready, and able to send plans upon request to enclose one dollar. Christ through the heavens too and was never heard from again. I know a man in Covington, Kentucky, an engineer friend of mine. During the Depression, having nothing to do, he built one of these monstrosities. It took him eight months to build it. And then after it was built, no one in his house could stand a mantelpiece that lit up while the beer barrel polka was being played. And so he uh, dismantled it, quietly put it in the basement. It's never been heard from again. And we were to go off a little further and observe this just as objectively. Uh, if we were to count the numbers of, oh, let us say, table lamps that were constructed of old deer heads, the number of table lamps that constructed of uh, stuffed red squirrels, and certainly among us doesn't know a man who at one time was interested in making skis from barrel staves, plans upon request. Uh, in addition to that, uh, there was also a bass drum phrase through which the popular mechanics went. Uh, when the bass drums of almost any organization were constructed so that they have revamping busts colored lights, red, green, and yellow. And then on the outside was painted a genuine artistic type Hawaiian scene with waterfall. And then as the disc would revolve, the waterfall would appear to have flowing water. Plans available upon request. Each one, each in his own turn. Oh yes, there was, I understand, quite a, quite a thriving business at one time in uh, teaching individuals to bead lampshades. And then just as the technique was mastered by a large group, the beaded lampshade slipped into oblivion along with the 10,000 beaded lampshade artisans. And as those of you who listen to our program nightly realize, our field is extremely narrow. We the, well, the non-successful. We the non-ambitious. And when we do, and when we are suddenly ambitious, we're only sort of on the surface ambitious. Because we know that we're not going to achieve really what we set out to do. We never will, actually. We the non-successful. And for that reason, I have also made part of our slogan, part of our working tenets in the group, it is fun to not be ambitious, or be slovenly. That can be part of it. Or we can say, be lazy, in large capital letters on a background of blue cardboard. You can keep it before you in your desk drawer or wherever you happen to want to use it. That will counteract such uh, statements as think or uh, work. 
or uh, smile. That's always a good one. Uh, I think that that's got such a rich, heavy, deep philosophy. We ought to think about that more. Uh, I once, but I suppose that's getting too far into the narrow field again. It was wise to listen, and it was wise to observe. Uh, from time to time, uh, spinning their tails on the library steps, they came across a strange and erudite truth. Uh, hard to pronounce, though. Now, to, to illustrate how non-successful one can be, uh, and, and in practice, you see, it's not quite as easy as you might think. Now, there are those who will tag the, what appears to be, mm, awfully negative mind, uh, anti-social. Well, that means anti-people, really, when it's boiled down. And there are several prominent uh, citizens of the animal world. When I say the animal world, I'm including the entire country. They have proven themselves to be antisocial in the extreme. And yet, at the same time, they are very worthy and very valued citizens in the animal kingdom, which leads us neither here nor there. But to again prove how difficult it is really to be an operating non-successful man. You see, we have trouble with carbon plates out of the transmitter. Uh, they carbon up even more when I'm on than any other announcer in the business. We have had that proven by several interesting uh, micrometer tests of the thickness of carbon deposited over a given half-hour period of time segment. And that's a rather long involved technical type thing, but we will... We have an article coming out in electronics. You can read it in two or three months. I think it should prove very illuminating for those who have wondered about that problem. Now, getting back to basic non-success, the easiest way to do that and to prove that is to show a complete disdain by playing, once again, one of the finest records that Woody Herman ever turned out. Now, this, uh, again, illustrates a definite antisocial trend. It uh, illustrates uh, many other things. Uh, several of them are Freudian. We'll go into that later after 1 o'clock when the women and children have left us. Now, that demands a little explanation, too. You see, uh, years and years ago, uh, I resided in Indiana. I resided for a considerable, to learn to play a rather fair game of snooker, I might add, in Indiana. Of course, we traveled into South Chicago for the better game. Uh, when we speak of the better game, we speak of the more lucrative game. That's another story, too, and one that we'll save and wait rather handily until after 1 o'clock. And I will say this, that uh, coming from Indiana, I ran into some rather difficult uh, nomenclatural and operating problems. Uh, strangely enough, I found myself uh, at extreme odds and extremely uncomfortable when in the presence of community or group singers. Uh, I have been anti-group singing as long as I can recall. And as anyone can tell you, that is clearly an anti-social trend. Clearly an anti-social trend and one that should be dealt with summarily if possible. I have never enjoyed community singing and have felt that community singing is a little ridiculous in many ways, which places me again sharply at odds with many of the citizens of Big Newton Falls, Indiana. We will describe that later on, too. However, uh, I do feel that uh, from time to time a bit of community singing is in order for community-type singers. And I see that here in the town room tonight we are well supplied with community-type singers. I have noticed a few telltale badges and a few telltale lapels. I have even observed a few uh, rather, uh, I might say, rather significant labels, too. I have observed other things. We are writing a thesis on it, and it will probably appear in popular theses uh, a few years from now. Uh, the thing is in the works. 
But there's no telling how many things are in the works, you see. That, that is also part of the great and grandiose scheme that we started 18,000 years ago. That's when the works really began. When the first man traded two clamshells for one small coconut, that's when the works began. Uh, we now have floating cloud rides. Uh, we now have automatic drive mechanisms. We now have a sort of imaginary stilt way of doing things. But you see, that too is in the works. That will wait until after 1 o'clock when we will devote a few odd moments to what we call an interesting talk on works. Uh, not suitable for women or children or for club groups. Uh, for that reason, it is after 1 o'clock, of course. Uh, we have... Uh, oh, come on, let's do it. Uh, we, we're going to be here till 2 o'clock this morning. And there is nothing that is as detrimental to, to discipline in a group than people slouching over, sitting on the ends of their spine. Uh, I remember as a third-grade student, and incidentally, I was a third-grade student even when in secondary schools, uh, as a third, um, that's a long story. We have many things to say before two. But as a third grade student, I can recall very well, I can recall almost vividly being instructed as to the various intricacies and inadequacies of my spine. Now, I have been a sloucher ever since. And you can see uh, quite obviously, quite clearly, with almost crystalline clarity, that slouching is one of the outward signs of we, the non-successful. We are the blenders in the background. And we are the sort of amorphous group who try always to squeeze the last flat drop out of a bottle of Gretz beer. <laughs> the last one. And we'll put it down in and let it sit for a while, you see, and then pick it up real quick and shake it again on the hopes that some has dribbled down from the sides. And we are also the group who is always careful, always checking, invariably tries the salt shaker before we use it on the cheeseburger. A little in the palm of the hand, you know. Uh, we will be here until 2 o'clock this morning, concerned only with this strange in-between group, these floaters, these people who find themselves in suspension. Now, how many of you have had inorganic-type chemistry? Uh, you probably... You are probably... I had it three straight semesters, and I know something about this. Uh, but that's neither here nor there, or at least theoretically I do. I have transcripts. But as I float in between, incidentally, I understand that they are bringing out something new on the market that will take care of transcripts without surgery. And without surgery, and uh, it will be written up in the Reader's Digest, how I conquered or uh, transcripts can be fun. A seven-day cure. Uh, we'll be at the town room until 2 o'clock this morning concerned with that particular cure. And so they were wearing their badges. And by the way, I understand there are several people in the audience tonight here in the town room who have badges, but uh, who quietly keep them to themselves. Well, I've got a badge. I've got two or three of them. And one of them has to do with the second or third year I was in patrol boys. How many ex-patrol boys do we have out here? And how many ex-second-class scouts do we have in the audience? And I'll bet I'm the only XT5 in the group. The only XT5. Yes, I know you are, Dick. I'm sure. I'm sorry. Incidentally, there's a seven-year T5 man. Uh, the oldest I've ever seen. He is. Uh, we have. We too have battled with the. We too have battled with the early morning trouble trying to keep hot water going in the little place back of the barracks. Uh, that is particularly an army-type gag. But we're not going to. We're not going to desert you, mother. We're not going to desert you, child, either. 
We are not going to leave the frame, nor are we going to leave the beaten path. You see, time is running out. As sand by sand, grain by grain, drift by drift, and in fact, a shell by shell. They're singing and whistling their olden tunes, they're building their olden numbers, they're constantly peeling the old used airplane dope off their thumb. They go marching into oblivion. Padded shoulder to padded shoulder. Rabble sleeve to rabble sleeve. And this rabble sleeve, incidentally, has nothing to do with sleep. It has nothing to do with sleep. Just a sleeve that didn't hold up under repeated washings. That's all there was to it. And so they march forward in a sort of shuffling gait, never reaching, never striving, and never really approaching, just sort of limping, you know, once in a while. The Boyd Rayburn group, the old band of about 47 with Johnny Bothwell on the alto. Can you people out there in the doorway here? Just nod if you can. Can you hear out there? Okay. We have a few. Yeah. I wonder how many of you have ever been out here in midweek. One of the most fascinating examples of a cultural pattern that we have seen, or that is a Philadelphia-type cultural pattern, is the group of Wharton School undergraduates who usually gather out there in the doorway carrying portable radios and their own surrounding sandwiches. You can see, you can see that there is much hope. You can see that these, the youth of the country, know just exactly how to get there. As a child, of course, I fell into ill, ill, ill repute among certain segments of the society because uh, I fell to work in alley number seven. Uh, I became a pin boy. Uh, I received a letter from a man in Rochester a few days ago who challenged me. Uh, he said that I claimed that I drank five quarts of, of cream soda and a good quiet league night. That wasn't exactly true. I would say it was roughly seven quarts of cream soda. But that is not a hand of that. Uh, do, how many of you know the acrid taste of tepid cream soda? Uh, how many of you know the sharp pangs in the nostril of the old Brunswick bulky calendar blue Q chalk? Uh, how many of you recall the days of halcyon ones and the days of your and the days of the old green moments? Uh, precious few, I would say. And there's a term that I like to use from time to time. Find very little chance to do it. In fact, it's the first time in six months. A precious few of you, I would say. I repeat it again. That we have felt that we have lost a, a few of our grips, our grasps on the language that we have created. And let's watch them in the tourney. And let's watch them as they gather on that dusty rodeo ground. And let us watch them with their ropes, and let us watch them with their saddles. Now, they're on all sides of us now. We are embattled. They're outside the windows. They're on channel 6SJ7, blown to seven times life size with the new uh, projection-type TV screen. And we can see them now juggling their plates, and we can see them now approaching culture via the Rodeo route. And we can see them now thumbing through their well-thumbed and well-dog-eared volumes of old forgotten lore, old spicy detective magazines. A back and forth and over and up again. There's no art like calendar art, I always say. Uh, let's give it back to the Rodeo. Recordings, Jean Shepard, we are at the town room at a Tonshire Hotel at 39th and Chestnut Streets. Now, the man who is interested in high fidelity has an avowed enemy. His enemy is the five-inch radio, you know, the little handy-dandy plastic type that sits atop the refrigerator. Uh, if you are interested, we have 
devised several rather interesting uh, gambits whereby we battle tooth and nail against the five-inch radio. And we will play a whole series of quiet-type records. Everything is going fine. And then all of a sudden, just as we know, uh, the owner of this particular atrocity has turned his back. Uh, picked up another piece of limp salary, perhaps, idling away, frittering his time. And we hit him at the psychological moment. Four-inch loudspeaker rattling and roaring. It slips behind the refrigerator and gasps its life out amid the workings of the compressor. Never to be heard from again. And this is the way it's done. before we do anything else. The 1953 Heart Fund campaign is under full swing. And uh, you see, these people have a good sound grasp of radio. These people who write these little, uh, these little, what we call promotion announcements, they say, send your contribution to a heart. And then, very tactfully, they spell it out. H-E-A-R-T, uh, heart, that is. Uh, send your contribution to Hart in care of your local post office, or if it's Philadelphia, it's the Philadelphia Post Office, a very worthy organization. Uh, that's spelled H-E-A-R-T, Hart. Uh, we also have another note uh, from the Social Security people to the effect that if you're going to retire, you'd best uh, contact the Social Security people in your neighborhood uh, to give them the information. Don't you think that is an invasion of basic privacy rights? I'm sure that many of our listeners are ready to retire this very moment. Well, call your local Social Security office. Let them know you listen to the radio. Give them a call. They'll make certain that uh, all the various little strands of paper are in order. They'll make certain that all the papers are signed. They'll make very well certain that you put your middle initial down there. None of this NMI business. Now get in touch with them. And we stand at semi-attention. Uh, semi-attention. Incidentally, there is a town in western Illinois named Semi-attention. It is just outside the Urbana, but we are not going to confine ourselves to Philadelphia, nor are we going to consign ourselves to the clear surveillance and the working and the studying and the chipping away at these various elements of geography. And we have other things to see. And we have other prisms to watch. And by the way, that prism is spelled with an M. Uh, there is there is no letter between the S and the M. It has to do with astigmatic effects. It has to do with the spectrum. Uh, we'll be here till 2 o'clock this morning. I haven't had a good spectrum in a long time. There's a little place outside of Hamilton, Ohio, that used to fix them in deep print. They were always fresh. But the spectrum of today, of course, is a shoddy thing by comparison. All right. Uh, the only way to, to battle this hearing thing is to organize. Now, I don't like, I do not like disorganized ad-libbing. I feel that there's something untidy about it. Uh, so perhaps we could organize uh, a, oh, a little session of, of community singing out here. I, I think that might go well at this time, don't you? I've always liked community singing, haven't you? Uh, we will be here until 2, perhaps engaged in community singing before this program is out. Now, I'll give you a little trade trick. Are any of you interested in trade tricks? Are any of you interested in card tricks? 
Uh, how about chalk talks? I've prepared a wonderful sequence of chalk talks that I feel ought to go over well. The little five-inch things, you know, that, that follow after television programs that have run short. I am always, I am sort of a standby performer. I am ready to be put in the slot, in the breach, as we say. Uh, I am, I am equipped with a series of small plugs. They just put me right in business immediately. I'm, I'm ready with a chalk talk. And I think that it's going to be invaluable. Now, my chalk talks are not going to be the funny type. Now, for one thing, I feel that the, that the population, by and large, is unfamiliar with integrals. That shall be corrected. I feel that the public, by and large, is, fam is familiar with things that are rather light in content. Last night, we spoke briefly on behalf of kitchen mittens. I am sure that few of you were interested. Kitchen mittens, as we pointed out, is a sort of antique garbage. We are creating kitchen mittens for the anthropologists and the archaeologists of the 60th century right this minute. I can see the average cheeseburger now. It has been preserved by a sudden petrification. It has been preserved, and uh, it's in a little glass case. A genuine 20th century type food found in one of the uh, outlying eastern seaboard districts of North America. Uh, this area used to be known as Philadelphia. Uh, this is all we have left. We will be here until 2, as I'm on. Oh, by the way, I'll give you a little trade secret. Now, now one brief moment. As you know, sporadic talk has sprung up here out of the town room. Well, I knew a man years ago who was a very, very fine burlesque drummer. Uh, he used to wear out as many as, oh, I'd say four or five sets of tom-toms in a season. His picture used to appear in Downbeat, you know, the little pictures that appear in there. Uh, I use plastic reed signed George Fignoten. Well, he was the tom-tom king of the Middle West. Starring, I have noticed a few genuine articles this evening, and I think you gentlemen should know about it. Now, do you notice the heavy silence that has fallen over them now? They're waiting. Now, I am not going to point. I am going to allow this mystery to remain just exactly that. It's something to do with the lighting situation out here, I understand. Also has something to do with acoustics. But old Uncle Fred has been ionized low these many years, so we've no better tears about him. Now, there shall be other Uncle Freds. They follow one another in an endless sequence. Actually, I feel that that is really what is meant by infinity. This endless generation of Uncle Freds who spring up around us, you know, with the wrinkled little tips of eyes and the, the friendly smile, peering out at us from beer ads, appearing coyly out at us from behind sofas, the endless supply of Uncle Freds. Seven, by the way, it's been a long time since we've had a good a plague of locusts. Uh, I think it's been since, oh, well, for heaven's sakes, it's so far back, I can't even remember. But I do recall one time. Uh, well, we'll have that out later on. Well, the weather really is fine. So don't you know just what I'm talking about? You want to find out to come take a trip and meet down below that old Dixon line. Where the sun is happy to shine. Where a friendly face is coming to see. That's where I'm longing to be. And so now we come into what we love to call on our program our interesting talk division. 
Our interesting talk division, as you know, has developed many nationwide friends of this program. And we would like to switch you to Cleveland for a talk on uh, a talk on drag brakes by Pondo, but he's not in Cleveland tonight. He's in the town room of the Penn Sheraton Hotel, frittering away his time. We have a, a large group of confirmed fritterers who listen to our program. It is well known that anyone who is up after midnight is a little suspect. Just a little shifty. Uh, as a matter of fact, I rather suspect them. I suspect them of many things. It's obvious that few of you are up to no good here. Now, it is quite obvious from my vantage point that few of you are up to no good, I reiterate. Now, however, according to our founder in one of the interesting talks, it was delivered many years ago on our program. There are many things to be seen in this particular facet of American culture. For example, do you know that Broad Street has a long and illustrious uh, history in the world of baseball? Or shall we talk about Broad Street and or slash its relationship to the early days of baseball tonight? Or do you wish to uh, hear an interesting talk on the wonders of plastic and the strange and exotic things it has wrapped in today's world? Or would you like a talk on the runway? Uh, we can we can oblige you in any one of these directions. Now, I, I kind of prefer baseball. Did you know that one of the most interesting uh, one of the most interesting manifestations of Philadelphia type people occurred on Broad Street just before the turn of the century? And this is actually true. It can be found in the record. Uh, one of the most famous of all baseball managers at this time was a catcher. And in those days, there were no automobiles. Uh, that's a hard thing for small ones such as you and I, or is it you and me? You see, I never went to Beaver College. It is a hard thing for us to, to understand. No Dynaflow drives. Uh, but nevertheless, these people, in all of their... Uh, in all of their misery because of the lack of conveniences all kinds of things weren't convenient in those days uh, in fact it became such a such a thing that people used to walk around the streets complaining about the lack of conveniences and that too can be found uh, to illustrate what we mean by conveniences one of the ball teams used to use broms you know what a brougham is well it's a large open sort of large open sort of carriage and they used to put four ball players in each one of these broughams, and they didn't dress at the ballpark in those days. They dressed at the hotel. And they would come out to the ballpark riding in the broughams, dressed in their baseball suits, and then they would come back from the ballpark dressed in their baseball suits. They didn't play at Shide Park then. Well, this very famous catcher uh, had uh, spiked one of the local Philadelphia ball players. It was one of those melees that occurred at home plate. And they were moving up Broad Street. And one of the local citizenry, seeing his opportunity, uh, darting out of a store with a shovel, scooped up some of the inconveniences that were on the street at the time. This actually occurred. He darted to the side of the brougham, dashed this inconvenience in the face of the catcher, and said, that for you. And then he, he turned around and darted into a local uh, feed, egg, and, and grocery-type store. Well, our catcher, being a man of action, leaped out of the brougham, tore into this grocery store, round and round the counter they went. By this time, citizens of Philadelphia, they were around. You see, in those days, they have bastions. By the way, how many of you have a bastion in your backyard? They're not what they used to be. They, they also had ramparts. The Philadelphian was the first to spring to the rampart. 
And so a small rampart was set up on Broad Street. This actually occurred. Several of the citizens, upright, honest, and always ready for action, darted in and picked up a large case of eggs, dashed them over the head of this catcher while he was wrestling with the man on the floor and said, for you, that. He was soundly defeated. Uh, he went on to win the National League pennant seven straight years. And the point is neither here nor there. This is just a moral. I'm quite sure that that's not the footers we have out here at the time. We would never do such a thing. Uh, they, in their frittering way, in their stacked, almost limping manner, realize their inadequacies. Few of us can turn out a different Poor, measly substitutes have very little relationship to the ramparts. Uh, I'll never forget a small rampart that I uh, once almost thought was in Cheviot, Ohio, whereas the natives pronounce it Cheviot by some odd twist of the local larynx. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, it was the 19, I believe, the 38 uh, rampart that had been turned in on a bastion of the period. But these things change ever and above always the quicksand for sale a knee-deep division. Be the first in your neighborhood to land same. We're here to two. Rounders. Uh, the term has changed its meaning like so many things. Uh, by the way, we've had some wonderful laboratory specimens, too. Uh, out here at the town room from time to time, I'll never forget. I have one of the wildest rounders I've ever seen in my entire career of watching rounders perform in one way or another. It seems that he was under the delusion that he was an ex-Rodeo rider. And for all I know, he might have been. He sat out here staring off into space. And from time to time, he would describe various incidents that occurred in the sawdust ring, much to the gratification and the amusement of those who were seated around him. But I, I, I understand, though, and I certainly can sympathize with him, you see, he, for many years, had dated uh, women-type people who were addicted to mixed drinks. Now, it is well known that one of the great curses of civilization is the mixed drink. And the mixed drink is largely the concoction of woman. It is largely the concoction of, and it is largely foisted upon man by woman. We're using the editorial or the capitalized sense in this case. Uh, the mixed drink division of the average bartender's lore is complete with many strange and exotic concoctions that have been known actually to shrivel the stomach of man upon instant contact, but not the stomach of woman. Now, this is one of the strange anomalies, one of the strange paradoxes that exist in the other We have many other interesting facts. How about a talk on scrambled eggs? Or would you prefer a talk on the evolution of the bowling pin? Uh, we have a talk on, on uh, amoebas. By the way, I understand that the, the average amoeba has a very interesting biological history. Now, the last amoeba that I've had much contact with uh, was a woman who taught sociology in a Midwestern college. Uh, she was a very fine example of the amoebic type creation uh, that found itself on the shores of an archaic lake, low indeed these many eons ago. Uh, I will say roughly that the eon is about, oh, well, we don't wish to go into this because it isn't quite yet one o'clock. Uh, we feel that there are a few dogged women and a few dogged children still clinging to us uh, due to perhaps a slipping dial cable. Uh, but we'll be here till two o'clock this morning. 
We have prepared many strange and illustrious Dion's goodies for you. It's been a long time since we've had a goodie. We'll be here The Ted Heath Group. Well, this is, uh, as I say, this is not the ordinary program that we do out here at the town room. And the, the, the reason, of course, is obvious. Now, this is the last program we're going to do here in Philadelphia. We have about uh, 62 more minutes to go. And then our contract is null and void. Our contract has been null for a long time, but it hasn't been void. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. That is something to do with the technicalities of, well, we don't wish to go into hierarchy and nomenclature. Uh, but nevertheless, this is our last program here in the town room of the Penn Sheraton Hotel. And many people have come out here. And before you scurry out, I know that it's almost 1 o'clock in the morning and many of you will be doing so, I wish to thank all of you people who have been listening to us. And I'm very sincere about it. This is not being funny because... I realize that it takes listening, and I realize that many things that I do uh, might not be good listening. And I, I'm the first to admit that. And I'm also the first to say this. Probably not the first, but I'm probably the only one on 50,000 watts to say it. That there are many things that we attempt that do not come off. But I, I do feel that a few things do come off. Just a few. But if a few of them do, I think that the wasted shots in the dark are worth it as long as the few do come off. And to those of you who have listened to us for, we went on the air here at KYW in April of 1951. Actually, it was April 4th. And oddly enough, we have received letters from people who have listened to us from the first broadcast onward. We certainly, we certainly respect the man's fortitude. Uh, we also respect the fact that it takes a pretty sound physique to listen till 2 o'clock in the morning and then get up at 6 to go to work. I have felt this. Now listen carefully. One minute. Then you can go back and you catch up. Uh, I have felt this. That, that radio is lacking one very important thing. It lacks a system of marking listeners. Now, now wait just one moment. Uh, a man with his radio turned on, reading a comic book with the radio at half level. He hasn't listened to it for 13 years. Counts just as much as a person who listens. Somewhere there is inadequacy, a very deep inadequacy in the system of, well, what we call rating. And I've always felt this, and I'm probably wrong by radio nomenclature schemes and by radio, certainly by radio definitions I am wrong, but I feel that morally and philosophically I am right, and I hope a few of you agree with me. I feel this, that one listener who listens is worth 100 people who have their radio turned on. And I would say probably even more than that. There is no way, though, to judge that. And, and so you people, if, if I'm afraid, however, that if you people were judged, if you people were given points, my listeners would be the one-point type listener. Uh, the, man, the man, you see, who is, who is very much concerned with this strange tingling sensation in his scalp would be the 12-point listener. Uh, that is called the chlorophyll group. Uh, so you see, the cards are weighted and loaded. But I will say before we do anything else that I have very, very much, uh, very much uh, well been in debt to many listeners for things that they have said, and I, and I welcome. And this is something that probably will surprise you. 
Uh, I welcome adverse criticism as much as I welcome a pat on the back. And because the avowed purpose of my program is not to please, but to begin trains of sequence, to begin trains of thought. And certainly if people do not agree with what I say and do not like what I say, that is just as valuable as a person who does, because we have begun a train of thought. Do you follow my reasoning there? But nevertheless, those of you who have listened to us steadily, we thank you very much. I hope that we can meet again, and I trust that we will. Uh, this is KYW, your Westinghouse station in Philadelphia. We have recordings. Gene Shepard at the town room of the Penn Charity. One more thing, uh, and this is, this is an answer to a question. In fact, a question that has been asked all night long. People come up and say, can we hear your program? Uh, can we still hear it here in Philadelphia? Well, you can. Uh, I will be broadcasting on a station in the Midwest. I will be broadcasting on station WLW. Uh, they are a powerful station. They are heard here. Their frequency is 70 or 700 on your dial. Now, I do not know, and this is the important part of it, I do not know what time I will be broadcasting that. However, if you are interested, now listen to me, one thing, and then you can go back to whatever you were doing. If you are interested, send a card or a letter to WLW Program Department, Cincinnati, Ohio, and they will send you a schedule of my broadcasting times. Just tell them that you listen, and that you listen to me at night, it makes no difference where you are, and they will be glad to hear from you. Uh, I don't know myself when I will be on, or I would tell you. But it's been a very, very fine pleasure working with KYW. In fact, I will say this, that KYW has been the most satisfactory radio position I have ever had. Uh, all the time I have been on, on KYW since, since April of 1951, and you don't know how unusual this is, I have never had one word of advice from the front office. Not one, not a single word. Now, there hasn't been a single note that came down and said, what was the idea of that Sanskrit sequence last night? But there wasn't a single note like that. And that is the most valuable thing in this world that is rapidly losing, by the way, rapidly losing its imagination because it's afraid to have one. And it is also rapidly losing its belief in other people. I'm talking about the guy next to you, and so hence, our speech as a free thing, speech as a rolling thing, is almost lost.